0: first indications that the immune system might respond to cancerous therapy appeared in the 18th century. In the 1890s, William Coley, a leading New York surgeon, began to seriously investigate this phenomenon. Coley injected streptococcal cultures into cancer patients and observed tumour regression in some cases. Coley treated almost 900 cancer patients with his bacterial preparation, which came to be known as Coley's toxin. However, the general feeling was that it would be impossible for the immune system to recognise and respond to malignant cells. W.H. Woglom expressed this in a review in 1929 by stating that it would be as difficult to reject the right ear and leave the left ear intact as it is to immunise against cancer. That was Professor... Wait, wait, wait.
1: Can we we pause right there? So they were comparing immunising cancer to... Rejecting an ear,
0: rejecting rejecting an ear while keeping the other ear intact.
1: I just I was hearing something and I wasn't sure if it was my ears.
0: Ah, <laughs> well played. That <laughs> was you. that was uh, an excerpt from an article from Professor Christopher Parrish from the John Curtin School of Medical Research at Australian National University, entitled "Cancer Immunotherapy: The Past, the Present, and the Future." But, uh, Josh Hurwitz, I think it would be safe to say our understanding of immunotherapy has become only slightly better since that time.
1: I think, yeah, well, we no longer call it a toxin, so that's a good start from a yes. optics perspective, a treatment yes. that actually works.
0: Yes. Can you imagine trying to sell a patient on a treatment called Coley's toxin?
1: Yeah, I, I think I'd pass. <laughs> <laughs> Probably me too.
0: Uh, One of the areas that uh, the immunotherapy has had a significant effect is the topic of today's episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, which is metastatic bladder cancer. So bladder cancer, I think we can both agree, Josh, is one of the the nastier cancers that we come across. It's the ninth most common cancer in the world. In 2016, there were 437,000 new cases and 186,000 deaths worldwide.
1: Do you ever wonder with the stats that we pull out, so for people who are listening, we get this from a variety of sources, up to date, systematic reviews, meta-analyses, that so many of these cancers actually aren't diagnosed in patients, especially in rural and low SES places. So it would be actually interesting to see if these stats include those. Just, just, a, just a minor segue when you talk about total numbers of cancer deaths and diagnoses.
0: Yeah, I think we also should uh, remember that these numbers, if we accept those limitations that you put in, Josh, they're going to be on the lower end of the uh, range of estimates. So 437,000 plus however many are undiagnosed. So, And the morbid topic continues. And the morbid topic continues. Uh, in terms of the people who are generally afflicted by bladder cancer, it's generally older patients. Approximately 73%, according to one retrospective study, uh, of patients with bladder cancer are older than 65. And the median age of diagnosis is approximately 69 years old in males and 71 years old in females. The most common or the most important risk factor is, of course, smoking. But as we probably know, many of our listeners are probably aware, there's a lot of Occupational exposures that are uh, problematic and convey an increased risk of urethelial cancer. Uh, I should also, we should also probably make a note, Josh, on the various uh, titles that urethelial or bladder cancer goes by, because it is, it is a cancer of many names. It is so. When we say urothelial cancer or transitional cell cancer, TCC or bladder cancer, uh, it is generally the same thing. Uh, It is important to know, though, that you can get TCC or urothelial carcinomas of the upper ureteric tract. So basically anything from the renal pelvis down, they are less common. The majority of bladder bladder cancer cases or urothelial cancer cases are diagnosed in the bladder. If we're, looking, if we're thinking about this from a Venn diagram perspective, most bladder cancers are urethelial cancers or TCCs, but not all urethelial cancers are bladder cancers. But you'd be surprised the number of patients and even, even the number of budding oncologists that are uh, confused by that. So with that out of the way, we're going to talk about two trials. And this is where my introduction on the... Uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to Immunotherapy comes into the fore, because both of them deal with immunotherapy. We're going to talk about Javelin 100 Bladder, and we're going to talk about Keynote 045, both of which deal with two different types of immunotherapy. So, Josh, with your executive permission, I might talk about Javelin 100 first, if that's all right.
1: Please do. I'm also mildly jealous, because I think you got the better topic this week. Yeah, I
0: did. I mean, we can't let you have all of the fun. I think you got the better topic last time.
1: I did. Uh, And do you remember when we were working together a couple of years ago, we actually did an audit based on bladder cancers?
0: Yes, I did. I remember that you did most of the work.
1: Did you? You should have used our statistics of, I think it was was 107 patients from memory as well.
0: Oh, that's bigger than some uh, phase three studies that are produced in some areas. Anyway, um, (laughs) So, as you can tell, we are both resident experts in the area of bladder cancer, based on this one retrospective study that we did when we were uh, tiny little proto-oncology trainees. So, speaking about Javelin One Hundred, so basically, what this study aimed to do is look at a anti-PDL one monoclonal antibody by the name of Avilumab and try and sequence it in first-line treatment. So the standard of care for first-line metastatic urethelial cancer is A-platinum plus gemcitabine. The most efficacious treatment is with cisplatin. There was once a thought that carboplatin was equivalent with potentially less toxicity. However, this is something that has been debunked with an increasing uh, amount of evidence. So... When we're talking and making comparisons uh, in this segment, we'll be talking about cisplatin in general because that is the better treatment. However, we say it's better, but everything in oncology is relative. So the median overall survival and progression-free survival with cisplatin and gemcitabine by itself is 14 months and eight months respectively. So we're still not looking at really good outcomes. People are looking at little over a year when they're diagnosed. And this is from the onset of treatment until death. Uh, And as we mentioned, outcomes with carboplatin are inferior to cisplatin. The the hypothesis of Javelin 100 was that chemotherapy increases antigen presentation while also depleting immunosuppressive cells. The increased antigen presentation increases the efficacy of immunotherapy by increasing the ease with which the immune system can recognise cancer as non-self cells, and as a result adding maintenance immunotherapy with a after chemotherapy may result in enhanced anti-tumor activity so in terms of the study design it was a multi-center open label phase three trial so again not blinded we are having a lot of these recently josh the non-blinded phase three trials um, patients were randomized one-to-one to receive either maintenance of velumab Every two weeks or best supportive care. So there wasn't a matching placebo, it was just best supportive care. And they continued treatment until disease progression or intolerance. Patients were stratified by best response to chemotherapy. So whether they had progressive disease, I actually think progressive disease, uh, patients with progressive disease were excluded from the study, but that's a point we can come to um, in a bit. So if patients had stable disease, a partial response or complete response. The burden of metastatic disease, where they had Disease in the viscera or non viscera at the time of um, chemotherapy initiation. So, by non visceral disease, we're generally talking bones and nodes. The primary endpoint was overall survival, which was assessed both in the overall population, also known as the intention to treat population, and the PDL1 positive population. PDL1 positivity was defined as any PDL1 expression greater than 1%. So, you really had a very low bar to clear to be deemed pd one positive. Secondary endpoints were progression-free survival, overall response rate, time-to-response, and disease control rate. So it's looking at a wide range of outcomes by adding a In terms of the demographics, there were 700 patients in this study. They managed to cobble together 700 patients that had a decent ECOG status, which, given that we're talking about older, potentially more comorbid patients, is not a small achievement. The median age was 68 years. The majority were Caucasian and male, as was mentioned before. 60% had ECOG of zero, so completely uninhibited functional status. The majority were lower tract disease, and over half of patients had visceral disease. So we're talking about patients with quite a high burden of disease on average. Uh, There there was a uh, relatively even split in patients, uh, in what chemotherapy patients receive. So 52% of patients receive cisplatin and 42% of patients receive carboplatin. And generally speaking, that's because there were contraindications to cisplatin, such as uh, hearing impairment or renal impairment. The best response to chemotherapy, I mentioned this before, but 72% of patients had at very least a partial response or a complete response and all patients had at least stable disease. So we're not picking out the really poor players who are going to progress during or immediately after their chemotherapy. In terms of results, Avelumab in general, just so our listeners can nod off for a little bit of of time, uh, the takeaway point is that Avelumab performed better than best supportive care. So the primary endpoint was overall survival, and that was 21 months versus 14 months, hazard ratio of 0.69. So 31% Reduction in the risk of death. The overall survival in the PDL1 positive group was higher, uh, and the uh, overall survival in the PDL1 negative group was 18.8 months versus 13.7 months. Secondary endpoints of progression free survival, still fairly abysmal if we're honest 3.7 months in the Avelimab group, but against two months, it's better. In terms of response rates, so confirmed the confirmed objective response rate, which is defined as either a complete or partial response. The overall in the overall population, nine point seven versus one point four percent of patients had a either complete response or partial response. So the majority of responses are gonna have stable disease. That's very, very small numbers.
1: It's still something if you've got a complete response in nearly ten percent of the population.
0: Yeah, no, no, a complete or partial. So any response.
1: Oh, oh yeah. that's, that's far less good.
0: Yeah. If we if we were having a 10% complete response for patients with metastatic bladder cancer, I think people would be singing from the roofs about this.
1: That's it. What was stable disease?
0: So stable disease, you had um, 12, uh, 12 and a half versus 13%. So relatively similar. In terms of the subgroup analysis, there were three areas, uh, three groups that there was a suggestion that the uh, treatment of maintenance of Elimab might be less effective. And those were patients with uh, who were very young, less than 65 years old, with an ECOG performance status of greater than or equal to one, with visceral disease and who are pd one negative. So several poor performance or markers of poor response that we know about Younger patients tend to have more aggressive disease. Patients with poorer functional status tend to be less likely to respond to immunotherapy. Patients with higher burdens of disease also tend to fall to pieces more easily and quicker. And patients that are deemed PD-1 negative, and remember that's PD-1 of pretty much absolute zero, are less likely to respond to immunotherapy. So not really surprising there. And in terms of safety, uh, the patients in the Avelumab arm, 77% of patients in the Avelumab arm had uh, a side effect of any grade, 16% of patients had a side effect greater than grade three, so a severe side effect, and 11.9% of patients had a side effect that led to discontinuation of Avelumab. Almost 30% had immune-mediated adverse event. And most interestingly, over 20% had an infusion-related reaction, and remember, this is a drug that you're giving every two weeks. And every so theoretically, every time you have a one-in-five chance of having an infusion reaction. It's also worth noting that in the protocol, uh, velumab was already pre-administered with an antihistamine with uh, loratadine. So this is despite pre-medications, people are still getting uh, infusion reactions. Um, The immune-mediated adverse event data, it was relatively unremarkable, nothing new. The most common cause or most common side effect was hypothyroidism followed by hyperthyroidism. But there was a higher than expected incidence of rash. Uh, 5% of patients had a grade 3 rash. or Sorry, a rash of any grade, I should say. And 1.5% of patients had pneumonitis. And interestingly... Uh, in terms of subsequent therapy, it's uh, worth mentioning this, especially when we come to Josh's article. In the overall population for patients getting Avelumab, only 6% of patients had subsequent treatment with uh, PD-1 or pdl one inhibitor. Compared to the Best Supportive Care Alone group, who had uh, who, in which 43% of patients had subsequent treatment which is probably the patients that Josh is going to talk about.
1: uh, Yeah, potentially. But this just shows how aggressive this cancer is that half of your patient cohort don't go to a second line of therapy. They don't have a second line of chemo. They don't have any clinical trials. They just go down the palliation route because it's so aggressive and so difficult to treat.
0: Which I guess definitely fits with what I've seen, Josh. I don't know about you, but... This is one of those cancers that, if you don't control or when it progresses after first line therapy, they frequently do tend to deteriorate quite quickly again because they're older and likely have uh, more comorbidities.
1: I find, unfortunately, a lot of the patients I was seeing actually weren't even well enough to get to ke- to chemo, so we palliated them there because it would have Watch just made sort a- of upfront. Up front, yeah, because they were so mm. unwell. Some of them were just bedridden. They came in really late stages. Mm. And the chemo, even a single agent, probably wouldn't have done a lot of benefit.
0: Uh, mm. Well, well, exactly. I mean, if you're bedridden, if you're ECOG 4 or 3.5, as we sometimes say, then the benefit that you're going to wring out of chemotherapy and then subsequently immunotherapy, uh, if you're in a place where you can sort of get immunotherapy regardless of functional status, is going to be minimal. And I just want to make uh, one last note um, on this about uh, an update uh, to Javelin 100 that came out uh, earlier this year in 2022. Uh, And the only part of this update I'll note, because most of it is the same as the published data, but the the survival in the PDL1 positive group, which you might have noticed, our keen listeners will notice that I didn't actually give any numbers in the PDL1 positive group beforehand, and that's because it hadn't been reached at the time of the initial publication. But they published this update earlier this year, and the survival for the PDL one positive group was thirty point nine months versus eighteen and a half months. And so, there's a question about the, the usefulness and utility of PDL1 as a marker for response or for prognosis is still relatively uncertain. But it is interesting that, I mean, we could expect patients who are PDL1 positive to do better. But it's also interesting that the patients who didn't get a Velumab seem to do better if they were PDL1 positive, regardless. That probably has something to do with them getting a uh, immunotherapy later some of them getting immunotherapy later which might be driving that but uh, it's it's interesting
1: yeah it's very interesting and it shows just how little we know about the biology of the or how much more we have to learn about the biology of these cancers
0: yeah absolutely i think that's something that's going to be an ongoing area of study is really tailoring treatment and getting it to people who are going to going to benefit the most so I'll wrap up my half with a, with a bit of summary. Um, the, in terms of strengths and limitations of the study, it's a big study for bladder cancer, 700 patients. There's a persistent overall and progression-free survival with the addition of maintenance of Elimab to chemotherapy. And there is a generally tolerable side effect profile that came out in the study. Obviously, those infusion reactions are questionable, especially, as we said, if you're getting it every two weeks. As we said also it's also excluding the uh, really poor players in terms of rapidly progressive patients post chemotherapy but generally speaking i think if you are able to get it in in our great homeland of australia there is an access program for this for a post uh, chemotherapy if patients have had at least stable disease after uh, induction i guess you could call it chemotherapy Uh, this is probably a standard of care. And I think Josh will argue the argue the negative on this particular debate uh, when he talks about Keynote 045, which is using immunotherapy in a slightly different way.
1: Thanks for the introduction. So my trial is the Keynote 045, which is pembrolizumab, one of the other high hitters or hard hitters of the immunotherapy world, as a second line treatment for advanced urothelial cancer. It's and a hard hitting... It's a hard-hitting high achiever. It is, it is. It's <laughs> everywhere. But the real important question here before I get into the details is this is second line, right? So you've already given a value map in Michael's setting. If you give it to another patient, can you give Pembro as a second line? We don't know, which is something that would be a very interesting follow-up research question. But it would be an investigator-initiated because I dare say that the drug companies, if it's not by the same guys, would definitely not want to collaborate
0: yeah, which of course makes it very hard to fund because you're going to have to find an academic institution that's willing to cough up the, what is it, ten, twenty thousand dollars per dose?
1: Yeah, probably not going to happen, uh, in my lifetime. But let's let's get to it and we can have a bit of a ball learning learning about Pembro as a second line setting. So, a couple of interesting things. This trial came out in 2017, so I think it's fair bit earlier than a value maps trial when was a value map released the data
0: i think it started recruiting in about 2017 potentially just before keynote was released and it was published from memory in 2020 or 2021 so it was subsequent to keynote
1: yeah interesting because their little biology or their introduction goes it can be a carbo or cisplatin based chemotherapy initially and obviously as we discussed carboplatin has very much fallen out of favor in this cohort of patients their their estimated overall survival in this cohort of metastatic cancer was 12 to 15 months and they talked about the monoclonal antibodies against pdl1 and it's got robust anti-tumor activity which we already know from prior episodes in our podcast now like very much like michael's trial this was an open label international phase 3 trial where 542 patients were with advanced urethelial cancer that had recurred or progressed after platinum-based chemotherapy to receive pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy. That was really the, the control arms, right? Now, different in the setting that Michael's patients were very much naive in their treatment, now it was one to one, and the investigator was actually able to choose which chemotherapy they gave. So it was either pembrolizumab every two weeks or paclitaxel, docetaxel, or vin- vinflunine, which I have never heard of. Have you used vinflunine, Michael?
0: Um, no, I don't actually think we have access to it in Australia.
1: Yeah, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Otherwise, I've been living under one very big rock. I mean, you
0: you still could have, but uh, I think that the rest of
1: oncology in Australia has also been living under the same rock right there with you. As long as we're all in good company. Anyway, they'll randomize according to ECOG status, how they got liver mets, what their hemoglobin performance is, and time since last dose of chemo. Patients were continued on the pembrolizumab until disease progression, toxicity, or withdrawal from the treatment. And if they had a complete response to treatment, they could have up to two years of pembrolizumab that was funded by the company. If progression, the interesting thing with this is they weren't allowed crossover. So in some trials, when crossover is a theory that if let's say pembro is so good and you're on chemotherapy, if you progress, you can then switch to chemo. Sorry, switch to immunotherapy, thereby improving your pfs and your overall survival they didn't allow this in this trial inclusion criteria have to be of age so greater than 18 biopsy proven neurothelial bladder cancer have to progress after platinum-based chemo or uh, recurrence within 12 months and fewer than two lines of systemic therapy and as michael very poignantly noted most patients don't get beyond two lines of therapy so that. That's just a little further emphasis. They had to have an ECOG performance status of 0 through to 2. They've actually included 2, which I think is reasonable in a trial like this when people do progress and get really sick really quickly. Now, there were exclusion criteria with this ECOG performance status of 2. So they had to be able to look after themselves if they had a hemoglobin under 100 or less than 10, depending on what you use, or they had liver mets or they had last dose less than 3 months, they were excluded from the trial endpoints for this trial There were combined dual primary endpoints which i have not seen before but it was overall survival and progression free survival i suspect they chose it because it's a pretty low bar to reach to beat chemo
0: i do love a co-primary endpoint
1: yeah it's great um and the overall survival <clears throat> just to re- remind our listeners is either time from randomization to death from any cause and progression free survival is time from randomization to progression of or death from any cause. Our secondary endpoints was objective response rate, duration of confirmed response, as I'm going to abbreviate as DOR, and there were several other ones which I might mention.
0: You're not going now, to abbreviate it as DOR?
1: <laughs> well, I do. That's, I'm going to be, definitely abbreviate it as DOR. It's going to be great. Anyway, so median age, similar to Michael's in the mid to late 60s, predominantly men. and majority of patients were either current or former smokers so that's about 60 percent in both arms and pdl1 combined positive score greater than 10 percent was seen in a quarter of patients in the pembro and about 33 percent of patients in the chemo arm number of risk factors three or more i think this is just a poor risk stratification about 40% 40% would have two or more risk factors for poor outcomes. And what we see in the overall survival is a definite, a definite benefit in the pembrolizumab arm in both the overall cohort and along with the progression-free cohort. But this is an interesting trial, everybody. And the reason for that is a Kaplan micah show crossover of the lines. And what I mean by that is that initially for about the first four months, you see that the chemotherapy cohort actually do better than the pembrolizumab cohort i might ask michael because you're not asking questions do you know why that might be the case
0: i suspect it's because some patients don't really respond to immunotherapy at very least not quickly immunotherapy take generally takes two months or so before it starts to work Mm. and in some cases in some unfortunate cases Particularly with bladder cancer, I've seen it a couple of times where patients just progress or even hyper progress and uh, pass away very quickly. Exactly. Is that fair to say?
1: And, oh, very, very good assessment. Thank you. And when Yay. We go ten to points the... for me. <laughs> ten points for Gryffindor. <laughs> and when we're we both half or at... Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh... When we look at organ involvement and metastatic spread, they actually have mentioned liver Mets in this uh, trial. So about a third of patients in both cohorts had liver metastases and 90% of patients had just visceral disease or organ disease. So while the hazard ratio for death was 0.73, which was statistically significant, and the progression-free survival, which, interesting enough, was not statistically significant, um which is an interesting thing. So one one component was statistically significant while the other was not. And this is already, I uh, guess not as good as the abalimab cohort, but again, different settings. So it's hard to compare apples with oranges.
0: Yes, big, big uh, no-no comparing uh, across trials. And then no, we- exactly. We always say that and then we go and do it anyway.
1: Every single time. And the median overall survival was 10.3 months in the pembroliz- pembrolizumab arm and 7.4 months in the chemotherapy arm. So that's that's a difference of just under three months. The estimated 12-month overall survival was about 43% in the pembro arm and 30% in the chemotherapy arm. So you've got about 12 to 13% who were still alive at the 12-month point because of immunotherapy. Now, while one of the things I did note is those with a high CPS score or those with higher levels of combined PDL1 levels has a hazard ratio for overall survival of 0.57. So, again, even better than the overall survival arm. And if we look at the forest plot graph, and we'll link the article down the bottom, there's a lot of crossover of maybe it's not as good, maybe it is better. Um, Again, this is the overall survival I'm still talking about because people who had an ECOG performance status of zero to one did benefit from the immunotherapy, while those that two, while the, those that had a key ECOG performance status of two did not, and the same kind of goes for people who are current smokers responded better than those that did not, right? And it kind of keeps going like this, even pdo one expression, those that were less than 1% didn't benefit in overall survival, whereas those that greater than 1% did. And I thought that was something really interesting to sort of mention that a lot of our trials are positive trials because drug companies love that, but having trials that are a little bit more nuanced to actually discuss, maybe there's a cohort of patients that this would benefit, but it might not benefit everyone. Now, When we move on to progression-free survival, as I was discussing beforehand, the median progression-free survival was 2.1 months in the pembrolizumab arm and 3.3 months in the chemotherapy group. So people relapsed quicker on the immunotherapy arm, which I I don't really know. Maybe it's just a more aggressive cohort of patients because they've got more organ disease it was shorter of time to responding. So maybe this is why in that mab cohort with the chemotherapy given up front, you'd already sensitized the tumor and you'd controlled what would have been either a bad PFS. Whereas in this case, as you remember the exclusion criteria, they weren't allowed chemo within three months prior to starting this treatment which is very, very interesting. And when we look at the objective response rate, they didn't even mention the objective response for the chemo arm. They just said pembrolizumab was 21% higher. Don't does, really know why.
0: Does that, just, does that mean they just don't have um, data? They don't have numbers?
1: Look, look, I might not have seen it, can I be honest? But I was looking, I'm like, this is a really odd sentence. And I just wanted to point that out. (laughs) Median time to duration of response was 2.1 months in eight. So again, that also doesn't really work in this trial. And that's uh, something I need to question because if people are progressing on one cohort but not the other cohort and they've got the same duration of response, are you then saying that pembrolizumab is actually less effective? Um, And I think I'd have to go delve into the depths because I don't actually have that data, but that is something else I would be very interested in kind of looking. And if I'm looking at the objective response rate, um, yeah, so now this stuff doesn't really work because as I said before, objective response rate is higher in the immunotherapy arm. Duration of response is equal between them. Yet PFS is better in the chemotherapy cohort.
0: I have. I should also throw out the fact that PFS is frequently disappointing in immunotherapy cohorts and honestly i don't know why i've heard the words immune priming uh thrown around without very much context as to what that actually means but it's it's you don't generally see huge differences in pfs but you do see differences in overall survival when there's obviously a successful trial
1: yeah but these guys might not have enough time to get to that overall survival if they end up dying so that is very
0: true i guess one sort of caveat we should always tack on to pfs is it's not just the time to progression it's the rate of progression afterwards if you have Mm. if you have a slight progression that takes you off the trial but then your disease remains relatively indolent or well controlled for a period of time afterwards that's going to be better but obviously if your if your cancer continues to rampantly progress and rapidly spread and grow then your outcomes are going to be poorer so it's not not all pfss are created equal
1: mm, very true so in summary very wise very wise mikey <laughs> as always so in summary of this trial there was a statistically significant improvement in overall survival in the second line pembrolizumab use with a median overall survival of 10 months and a median overall survival of 7.4 months in that of the chemotherapy arm. Whereas we saw a definitive, no statistically significant difference between pembrolizumab or chemo in progression-free survival with as an expected safety profile. So as a summary, maybe in a select cohort, but I would be interested to see the use of pembrolizumab in combination with chemotherapy in this cohort and compare that to you know, just standard of care chemotherapy as a second line. Although again, in this day, would you do that? If a value map is already proven first line, you'd use that in a first line setting.
0: Well, that sort of comes to what I was going to ask and put out for discussion. Josh is is in it coming back to this mystical, perfect world that we so frequently visit where you have access to everything based on the data that we have. There's no restrictions. Everything is free. There's no monetary system. what are you going to use are you going to put all of your chips your poker chips to the middle of the table go all in on first line knowing that a significant proportion of your patients aren't going to make it to second line or are you going to try and minimize i guess toxicity maybe string things out a bit and save something in reserve maybe save one chip one poker chip uh, so that you're not going all in to try and string things out when patients
1: inevitably progress. What are you gonna do? This is pretty clear cut in my mind, Michael. These patients are going to progress fast. Having a poker chip in your pocket is not a good option. You should throw it all at them and see that, hope that everything sticks. So if it was my patient and they had a high burden of disease and I was worried they were gonna progress quickly, which they are, it's going to be chemotherapy, the four to six cycles, as you were talking about with cisplatin, and then you'd follow that by the a value map, hopefully for the one to two years, if they continue to respond. If they get to a point where they've completed their two years and they're doing really well, you can either observe, and if they progress, your options are potentially to try this, although I don't think there's a lot of evidence giving Pembro in the second line, and so I'd be worried, but I'd actually be looking for a clinical trial if they're still well enough.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, as we always say on this show, clinical trials is always something that should be considered, especially if you are, as is so often the case, pushing all of your treatment options to the first line because while technically on our Australian uh, PBS, on our uh, on our restrictions, there's no uh, stipulation that patients uh, who receive pembrolizumab uh, in the second line treatment for bladder cancer, have not received any previous immunotherapy. That's mainly because there's no approved immunotherapy in the first line. So, once Avelimab gets approved, and it probably is a case of when rather than if, that loophole will almost certainly close very quickly, which means that if you give Avelimab first line, you're not going to be able to give Pembro second line. And I agree with you, Josh. I think that with the rapidity of of these patients going downhill, you really do need to try and give them the best chance up front. And obviously it comes with caveats. It's not an easy regimen to be doing for one to two years when it's every two weeks. And as we mentioned, there's the risk of infusion reactions and what have you, but it's probably the best treatment for a willing patient. And then once they progress on that, you really should be looking at clinical trials because the subsequent options in terms of chemo, are not very appetizing.
1: Hundred percent right, Michael. And I think the only other thing I need to summarize for this week is that Michael got the better trial.
0: <laughs> yes, and he's never gonna he's never gonna let that uh, that one go. At least until I give him the better trial next time. I have the me- I have a memory like an elephant.
1: <laughs> a memory like an elephant, but a very selective elephant. And speaking of elephants, a fun fact from Josh is that. There's a lot of research going into cancer in elephants because they seem to be quite resistant to developing this kind of disease. And the thought process is there might be two copies of a P53 protector gene, thereby reducing their risk of malignancy.
0: That's very interesting. But didn't you include
1: that fact last week? I, I might just edit it out then. But guys, it's going to be my standard fun fact of the day that elephants are resistant to cancer. And hopefully one day we all come back as elephants.
0: We're gonna rename this podcast elephants can't get cancer but you can
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> maybe not but that was a good <laughs> that was a good try just politically <laughs> probably not the best comment but at the same time uh, please
0: please direct please direct all of your complaints to josh and his elephant
1: wonderful box. we we need an email um anyway michael do you want to we summarize really and uh, say goodbye to our <laughs> lovely listeners
0: I think I will. I think we'll wrap that up because this uh, the quality of this podcast is devolving very rapidly. Um, so thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Josh, for a scintillating discussion on metastatic bladder cancer, as always. Uh, join us next week as we will be taking a deep dive into the revolutionary world of HER2 positive breast cancer. We'll be doing uh, two episodes, uh, one on early HER2 breast cancer and then the following week on metastatic it's going to be a fun
1: ride can't wait see you then
0: all right thanks very much josh and uh, we'll see you next time goodbye